0: Now I'm going to skip all the way down. It might be on the next page in your Bibles. Verse 41. It's the same day, just a little bit later. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in time. Just a few weeks later, Acts 4.29. And Peter and John have just returned from being um, persecuted and um, whipped by the Sanhedrin. And now they're praying. Now, Lord... So we have that, verse 431, 432? Now, the, Okay, that's New King James, that's fine. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's an important verse. Revive us again, O Lord, is the name of this sermon series. People may have different definitions of revival. I think we all have a picture in our head of what revival looks like. When I say I have always meant an outpouring of the Spirit to such a degree that the presence becomes tangible and the miraculous becomes prevalent. I'm being waved at by Sean for some reason. Oh, no, okay. He's waving at somebody else. Okay. One of those awkward moments where someone's waving at you, but then you realize it's someone else. Okay. There's a wonderful description from a Methodist circuit rider. This is from a a real camp meeting revival. It was called Cane Ridge, Kentucky, from way back in 1801. And you might appreciate this description. It reminds me a lot of what I saw when I went to Toronto in the mid-90s. Bear in mind before I explain this that uh, anyone who was in Kentucky in 1801 was a very rough-and-tumble sort of person. They were usually like illiterate farmers who wanted free land. Uh, More often than not, they were somebody who was escaping from something, like the law was after them or creditors were after them, and so they would flee west to get away from all their debts. This was like the roughest, toughest, wildest set of people you can imagine. Here's what happened at Cane Ridge. Quote, The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. There are about 25,000 people there. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time on stumps, on wagons, and one standing on a tree which had fallen in falling, lodged against another tree. I stepped up on a log where I could have a better view of the surging sea of humanity. The scene that then presented itself to my mind was indescribable. At one time I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them and then immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. Doesn't that sound like a fun scene to be at? Of course, I shudder to think what uh, the basic sanitation situation was for 25,000 backwoodsmen out in the middle of nowhere before in the days of, uh, well, you can imagine. I don't need to go into detail on that. I think if one of them came up to me and wanted to lay hands on me, I might be like, well, you can just pray for me from where you are. <laughs> Anointed chaos. That's what we often picture when we think of revival. But is that really the heart and soul of revival? I want to talk with you today about the heart and soul of revival. And there's a great description, there's a great definition of revival given by Charles Finney, who was the leading light of the Second Great Awakening. And before I read his definition, I want to tell you a little bit about Finney, he uh, preached to tens of thousands of people. And the places where he went through became so full of Christians that people derisively called them the burned-over districts because it was like they had just been burned over by the Holy Spirit, but they they meant it as an insult, these burned-over Christians. It was in New England and New York. And he changed the culture in that area so much in the 1830s and 40s that it changed voting patterns. You know, in America in the 1830s and 40s, for instance, abolitionism was an extreme position, but there were so many believers filled with the Holy Spirit in the burned-over districts. In order to win an election there, you had to oppose slavery, and they had to support treating Indians better and oppose Freemasonry, which was very common back then. And so it was just full of Christians, and it changed the whole voting pattern. And a new political party rose up called the Whig Party, which was the precursor to Lincoln's Republican Party. So you can trace a direct line from the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, to the Civil War and the abolition of slavery that grew up out of that in these burned-over areas. Here's what Finney says about revival. He says, Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. And in another place, he says, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. You notice that Finney doesn't define revival as people being slain in the Spirit here and there and all sorts of exuberant manifestations. This man who led one of the greatest revivals in our history who popularized the term revival, he's the one that wrote the book called Notes on Revival of Religion, which is such a 19th century title. But that's where the word comes from. He equated revival with repentance and obedience. I think there's something there for us to think about. Now let me ask you this. Do we expect to see revival here in our valley? I do. Yes. And I expect to see a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, dare I say it, right here in this very room. If you believe, as I do, that revival is coming, you will agree that when it comes, we want to be ready. And someone might say, what do you mean, be ready? Here's what I mean. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, six. he said this, in the NIV, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And the NKJV, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What is the gift of God if not a move of the Holy Spirit in you? So God, for his own inscrutable reasons, has ordained that we are in a position to steward or neglect the move of the Spirit. What an awesome responsibility he's given us. And sometimes I feel like, Lord, why don't you just do it and don't rely on us because people mess things up. Why don't you just do it? But he's God. He can do whatever he wants. And he wants to move through us as we steward what he's doing. Point one, in stewarding revival, unity is a must. In stewarding revival, unity is a must. You know, as I've been saying, God can do whatever he wants. He can move however he wants and through whoever he wants. But in all the revivals I've been studying and all the ones we've seen in our lifetimes, he's never moved in a place where there was disunity. And where disunity has sprung up, after revival has gotten started, it's always quenched the Spirit. Let's look at Acts 4.32 again. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And the NKGV, oh, that's what the NIV says. Yeah, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And Psalm 133.1, I love this psalm. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Do we want things to be good and pleasant? Yes, we need to live together in unity. Let me tell you what happened with the Cane Ridge revival. There's a reason you might not have heard of this revival. And honestly, if God's plan had followed through, we should have heard of it because it was called at the, in that day the American Pentecost. It was such a move of God... They didn't see the sort of things that happened at this revival for another hundred years. Till Azusa, even the Second Great Awakening, it had, had a lot of salvation, but they didn't have the manifestation of the Spirit that was so prevalent at the, at Cane Ridge. Nothing like that all the way for another hundred years. But it only lasted a few weeks, and I think that's tragic. What happened there? Well, there had been an amazing unity among Christians. That started it. The Methodists were there, the Presbyterians were there, the Baptists were there. These people were usually at each other's throats over doctrine, right? But they all agreed to um, put their differences aside and unite around what the Spirit was doing. But then when they went back to their own denominations and told what God was doing in excitement, their denominational higher ups all squashed what God was doing and said, that's just emotionalism, that's just sensationalism. That's not a move of God. And they put them through church discipline. Back then, church discipline was a very real thing. Today, if any church tries to discipline a member, they just go to another church. There's really no such thing as church discipline. But back then, they would discipline you, and you stayed through it, and it was like this humiliating experience. And they put them through that because of what they had seen at this revival. And so the reaction that came out for, for these people who had been there at Cane Ridge was they abandoned their denominations, which you could say if I kind of find that to be reasonable, but they then said, well, we don't want any denominations, we don't want any doctrine, we're just going to be a New Testament church, and the problem with that was, without doctrine, every kind of weed of heresy could grow. up. And what happens when your garden has no plants and no flowers in it? Weeds grow, right? So without any kind of um, church structure, they fell into Arianism, which says Jesus is not uh, divine. They fell into universalism, which says everybody can go to heaven, even those who don't repent and don't believe, and every other kind of heresy. And here's an account from someone who was there, a Methodist minister named Peter Cartwright. He said, if there had been steady Christian ministers, thousands might have been saved. But instead, they wandered off into vain speculative divinity, and their souls became worse off than before. Really tragic. So God was moving, but the revival fell apart in chaos and heresy and that's why we've never heard of it the fire was quenched now don't think this revival didn't matter to the ones who did get good saved there, it mattered immensely to them that's their eternity but I believe this revival was meant to change the face of the earth and instead it petered out after just a few weeks when that revival comes in in our time, in our area we need to be vigilant to make sure we stay unified so this doesn't happen to us that's why I'm telling that story I'm not trying to depress everybody. But we want to learn from the past, right? The Azusa Street Revival was 100 years later, and it saw some of these same things. And all of the modern charismatic or Pentecostal denominations grew up out of, the, out of Azusa. Assembly of God, Foursquare, um, Pentecostalism. There's like 30 different denominations in America today that started. They traced their roots back to Azusa Street. Uh, the things that happened there are really beyond belief. Creative miracles like limbs that would grow out and uh, the, the dead rising. The, the pastor's wife didn't know how to play the piano and she never had any lessons and she sat down under the gift of the Spirit and just started playing beautifully and she never lost the ability to play the piano. The Holy Spirit taught her in one second how to play the piano. Things like that. You should read about Azusa Street. But the, the big outpouring only lasted for three years. In fact, William Seymour, the, the pastor there, ended the last 15, 20 years of his life in relative obscurity, pastoring a tiny little inner city church. What had happened at Azusa Street? Well, there was disunity. He went on a traveling tour and one of his uh, lieutenants, sort of, one of his um, assistant pastors agreed to take over while he was gone and he ended up turning on him and just spent the whole time preaching how bad everything was that was going on. And then his wife um, padlocked that guy out of the church because she didn't like her husband getting attacked. And so the church doors were locked up for a time. And then Another trusted friend stole his mailing list. He had 200,000 subscribers. It was a huge publication nationwide, and it was all it was before computers, so they had, he just had it written down. And someone, uh, they fled to Portland with his mailing list, and what they did was they kept the publication going. They didn't tell anybody that they had hijacked it, and they just spent the rest of the time attacking Azusa Street. And he never got his list back. One thing after another, it's heartbreaking to read about what happened at Azusa Street in the last uh, few years. And through that disunity, the, the spirit was, was massively quenched. The great miracles and outpouring, you don't, you don't hear about those after 1909 because of all the disunity. Again and again, we see the biggest hindrance to continued revival is not attacks from the world. The attacks from the world come, but that doesn't shut down what God is doing. It's disunity from within. So, please listen to this. Focusing on unity now is focusing on bringing revival. You want to bring revival now? Focus on unity now. Focus on unity with the people in your own life now who you need to be unified with, even if they're hard to love. Again, Acts two one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, I don't know if we have NKJV, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That was the key. I want to read um, Dwight L. Moody. Uh, He says this. He was the one who inherited the great revival after Charles Finney in the late 1800s. He said, the spirit of God doesn't work where there is division. It's that simple. He went on, and what we want today is a spirit of unity amongst God's children so that the Lord may work. I thank God for all the mistakes I made in my 20s because they provide so many sermon illustrations now. You want to know how dumb I was in my early 20s? Thank you. I I did the 42 mile Rogue River Trail wearing sandals. That's how dumb I was. Thought to myself, why wear shoes? You can uh, with shoes every time you walk through a creek, your feet get wet and your socks get wet, and it's it's really miserable. Every time you want to go swimming, you have to take your shoes off, take your socks off, swim, come back out, and you know how horrible it is to put your socks on when your feet are kind of wet and sandy. I wanted to avoid that. So I thought, you know, what could go wrong with sandals? It solves all these problems. But I was going to be smart about it. I was going to test it out. So I did the two miles, the first two miles of this trail a week before uh, we were set to go just to be sure it was going to work. And it worked fine. Two miles, sandals, it was comfortable. It was wonderful. I thought, yes, this is so good. So I started on the trail with my friend and the first two miles, again, went really well, but we were doing 10 miles a day. It's a 42-mile hike. And by the end of the... First day, I had blisters all over my feet. Who knows there's a difference between doing two miles and doing 42 miles? Because apparently I didn't know that. By the end of the second day, 20 miles, I was limping in agony. The blisters were so bad. And luckily we had brought duct tape because we didn't know what we were doing. And You don't really bring duct tape on a hike, but we did. So I wrapped my feet in duct tape like a mummy, and then I could put them in my sandals, and that's how I was walking. Thankfully, back then we didn't—smartphones weren't a thing yet, so there's no picture of how dumb I looked. But it completely defeated the purpose of the sandals because I was wrapped in duct tape. Really painful to get off afterwards. Uh, on the upside, my friend thought it was hilarious. So I also needed better judgment in picking friends. More demanding conditions exacerbated a weakness that somehow wasn't evident under lighter conditions. Revivals bring many wonderful things, heavenly things, but they also bring attacks from without. Wolves and sheep's clothing from within and pressures from within. If there's any disunity in a body before revival comes, the move of God will reveal those cracks. Disunity can undermine or even destroy what God wants to do. Disunity is what the enemy schemes for in the church. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 2.10 Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What is his scheme? To get them not to forgive. What's the solution? Forgive each other. My friends, now is the time to rid yourselves of all disunity. We must be one in heart and mind as we wait for the Spirit to fall. Many of you know I rent a house from New Song. The building next to me is a little church uh, that they're buying from our church. It's where we used to meet 20 years ago. And for years, uh, where I live was a youth house where they only had one meeting a week. And so this little church that's next to my house was in the habit of using my driveway and thinking of, their driveway, thinking of my driveway as their driveway. And one of them told me the other day, it's a shared property. I was like, no, it's not a shared property. You have your lot. Here's the property line. I have my lot. This is my driveway. And they looked at me and they said, are you really a pastor? (laughs) They park in my driveway behind my car and they block me in. Their parking lot fills up during their services and I can't get their people to stop parking and blocking my car in. Even during the week when they want to bring things into their church. There's a little door that they love to use. It's right off of my driveway. And so they pull in behind my car and they bring their stuff in. But then they forget that they parked there. and I've been walking around their church banging on the doors and windows trying to get them to come out. And Sometimes they don't even come out. So I'm, I'm trapped in my driveway. It's really great. It's really exciting. So I find them. When I finally find them, I say, you know, hey, you're in my driveway. I need you to move your car. Please stop parking in my driveway. Oh, I was just bringing something in. Well, please stop parking my driveway. Even if you're bringing something in, park in your church parking lot. Are you really a pastor? (laughs) This weekend, they're celebrating their 23rd anniversary. So their pastor asked me if they can have my driveway for their get-together, and I agreed. So the other night, their ladies were outside having a great time cooking tamales, a 30-gallon pot of tamales, just off my driveway. So that was nice of them stay on their side but um, it was right outside my window where I sleep and they're having a great time they're laughing and talking and cooking their tamales it was two in the morning and I'm lying there in my bed listening to their talk and I'm thinking I'm building a fence I am gonna build a fence and they are not gonna be able to use that door that opens up onto my driveway they're gonna see how good of a fence a pastor can build once I build this fence So this is going on as I'm trying to prepare a sermon on Revive Us Again, O oh Lord. <laughs> and I'm reading about George Whitfield When he tried to preach, the church establishment closed their doors to his preaching, offended by the gospel, and they forced him to preach out in the fields. And then the churches would literally ring their church bells to try to drown him out and blow their trumpets to try to keep people from hearing the message. And, of course, God being God, all the effect that that had was to raise the awareness even more that he was in town and more people came to his, his field preaching as a result this is a real quote from Whitfield can we have the Whitfield quote up I was honored today with having a few stones dirt rotten eggs can you imagine rotten eggs and pieces of dead cat thrown at me <coughs> what was that who did that we hear about the huge crowds at Whitfield's meetings, the salvations, the great move of God. We forget that what accompanies being sold out for Jesus is opposition. John Wesley was preaching. Again, he's outdoors because the churches were barred to him. And a group of tough guys came, came at him. They were, they were like pushing him towards the ed- this edge of a pond. And he's, he kept backing up as they kept threatening him. And finally, he's, he decided, you know what? And he actually turned around and went out into the pond out up to his waist in the pond, or his chest. It's freezing cold, dirty pond in England. And uh, he turned around and he keeps preaching from the pond. And uh, a bunch of people get saved because there's people who want to hear him. It's just amazing stuff. And you have to forgive. You, he, if he had held a grudge against those, those ruffians, he would have lost his spirit. But you have to forgive when you're mistreated. So I was out walking a couple days ago and I was thinking on all these things. And I said, Lord, what would I do? If, this happened, if someone threw a piece of dead cat at me, would I be able to stay in the Spirit? And this soccer ball rolls past me. A couple of guys from the church were playing soccer out front. And the Holy Spirit said something to me. Here's an easy test. Let's see how you do with an easy one. <sighs> Jesus, why did I even ask? All right, I'm going to brag on myself because I... I told you the sandal stories, so I and I can say this. I, eventually, after some protests in my heart, I started thanking the Lord for this church. I started thanking the Lord. And I know you shouldn't brag on yourself, so this is your chance to forgive me and show me Christian charity. <laughs> I thanked him for the easy testing ground. If I can't even love them and get along with them, when frankly, they're actually very wonderful people. They brought me a whole plate of tamales later. They're really nice. If I can't even love them, how can I handle it when I'm being falsely accused, when I'm being attacked, when people are throwing dead cats at me? You know, this is good. This is a great chance to build those muscles of forgiveness for me for a harder, a real challenge that might come later. So I started thanking him, and I told the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm not going to build that fence. I'm not going to build it, and we're just going to have to keep working it out, and I'm going to have to keep forgiving them. It's going to be okay. And I do park my car right in the front of my driveway now. So somebody was, I I do do that. But the problem is there's a tree there and I have, now my car is always covered in bird poop. (sighs) Give and take. Okay. Do you know anyone who metaphorically speaking parks in your driveway and blocks you in? Is there anyone who's cooking tamales right outside your window at two in the morning? Figuratively, figuratively speaking. If so, thank God for them. In fact, I'm going to give you five seconds right now. Thank God for them right now. That's all it takes. Five seconds is all it takes. This will open the door for the move of God in your life like never before. And corporately, as we all become a church that gets in the habit of this, it will open the door for the move of God in our body like never before. We will be ready for the enemy's schemes, won't we? He's not going to get us to hang on to unforgiveness. It will be a lot harder for him to quench the fire when we are completely unified. If we're completely unified, the only thing we have to worry about then is sin. That's easy. We can can not sin. Right? Everyone's like, oh, I don't know. Let me be clear about something. Unity, Unity doesn't mean those annoying people who are bothering you need to unify with you and do what you want. It's easy to amen that sort of call to unity. I mean, you forgive them, you get over it, no matter how unfair it is. You forgive them and forget it. It's more important right now to be loving than to be right. It's more important to be loving than to claim our rights. First Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says this, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged, Why not rather be cheated? What does defeat look like in the kingdom? Disunity. That's what it looks like. That's defeat. So let me ask you, if that's defeat, what does victory look like? Thanking God for people who are hard to love. I'm going to end that there. I'm going to go on to point two, and I only have two points, and I only have two minutes. The purpose of revival is to sanctify the church and save the lost. The purpose of revival is what? To sanctify the church and save the lost. You know, I've always liked it when people who used to be alcoholics or used to be drug addicts say, you know, they get delivered and they say something like, uh, Jesus is my high now. Jesus is my drug of choice. I've always liked that. uh, But only as long as they're not just seeking a spiritual high. If all we're seeking is a spiritual high, we're missing the point of revival. Now, don't get me wrong, because some of you are thinking about this. I can feel the wheels turning in the room. The presence is a good thing. Seeking the presence is a good thing. Traveling to where you know the presence is being manifested in a special way is a good thing. That's all okay. My dad and I in the mid-90s drove 3,000 miles across the country to Toronto to see what was going on there in the mid-90s and to experience that revival and bring it back to New Song. And, you know, he made, this, he made me drive the speed limit. I was 16, and for a 16-year-old boy who has inherited the genetics I've inherited from my mother, to drive the speed limit was a trial by fire, <laughs> both ways, but we wanted the presence, okay, so Amen. go ahead and want that, but we need to remember the reason he fills us with streams of living water is not so that we can bottle it up, John 7:38. whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, Why does he fill you with streams of living water? So that it will flow out of you to a dry and thirsty world, right? We're not just chasing a feeling. We should be hungry for revival, at least in part because we're hungry to see the lost saved and the church sanctified. So go ahead and love the presence. Love being slain in the spirit. Being drunk at nine in the morning in the Holy Spirit. Stumbling around laughing and weeping tears of joy. I love those people when I see that. I want to do that too. Love all of that and desire it as part of a deeper desire to see the church sanctified and the lost saved. We all know our church is an evangelistic church. I don't speak for my dad, but I expect he agrees with me that we would rather see one sheep who was on the path to hell get saved than 99 sheep who were already saved get slain in the Spirit. The only exception I would make for that is if the 99 sheep who got slain in the Spirit became so sanctified and delivered that they went out and got a bunch more people saved. Then it would be worth it. Are we out of sync with the great revivals of history when we say salvations are paramount? Let's look at Acts 2. They got blasted by the Spirit in the greatest outpouring ever. And that same day, that very day, they led 3,000 people to Christ. Acts 4.31 We've already read this. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what followed after? It says, They spoke the word of God boldly. Here's John Wesley. First Great Awakening. You have one business on earth to save souls. That's what he said. He said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw, whether they be clergymen or laymen, such alone will shake the gates of hell. This is George Whitfield. If your souls were not immortal and you in danger of losing them, I would not thus speak unto you. But the love of your souls constrains me to speak. God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. This is Charles Finney, Second Great Awakening. It is the great business of every Christian to save souls. He said, quoting Proverbs 11, he said this, He that winneth souls is wise. Those are the best educated ministers who win the most souls. Wherever sinners are not being saved and believers sanctified, there's a lack of Holy Spirit power. And this is from D.L. Moody. He was wonderfully blunt. Talk about blunt. He was as blunt as Jesus. A man once testified in one of D.L. Moody's meetings that he had lived, quote, on the Mount of Transfiguration for five years. What would you think if somebody got up? I have lived on the Mount of Transfiguration for five years, kind of bragging. And (laughs) Moody's response, he said, how many souls did you lead to Christ last year? Uh, The man hesitated. I don't know, he said. Have you saved any? Moody persisted. I don't know that I have, the man admitted. Well, said Moody, we don't want that kind of mountaintop experience. When a man gets up so high that he cannot reach down and save poor sinners, there's something wrong. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. Now, I'm going to be blunt, and I don't say this to be mean or to make anybody feel bad. I'm speaking from the heart what I think is for all of our edification, including my own. I have had people come up to me in recent weeks and express excitement about Asbury who never once have expressed any excitement about evangelism to me. I've had a lot of people express excitement about Asbury who have shown excitement about evangelism. I thank you for that. And it's possible that they do get excited about evangelism, but I just never saw it. So, I'm not trying to put anybody down. If you're excited about Asbury and all other revivals, good. So am I. It's good to be excited about every move of God. Let's keep our eyes on the real prizes, though. The real prize of every move of God is a church sanctified and the lost saved. One more, very quick, tiny little point. While we wait for a great move of God here, while we wait for a great move of God here, Let's keep being excited. Keep being excited. If you're not excited yet, get excited about the souls that we're saving now. And try to be a part of it in prayer or evangelism, prophetic. Get involved. We're seeing a lot of miracles now. Let's get excited about what God is doing now. We had a deaf ear open up in the healing rooms three weeks ago. The lady was deaf from birth. And I was there. I talked to her. She was... was, You would not believe how beside herself she was. She kept... I can hear them talking way over there. She's crying. It was amazing. God is moving right now. And it just may be that our faithful stewardship of that movement now will bring a greater outpouring here in our church and in our valley in days to come. I'm going to pray. Lord, we want unity. We pray for unity among us. If there's anyone, any of us need to forgive, bring them to our mind right now. And we pray that we will forgive them. We pray that all of us will bear up with one another in love. It's better to love each other than to hold on to that. We just let it go right now. We want you to move through us and have no disunity that's going to hinder what you want to do. And we thank you that you're going to use each one of us in amazing ways to come. Sanctify us, holify us, righteousify us, and lead us to save the lost in our valley and in our lives. And we pray, holy fire, come. Revive us again, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Pastor Dan? Amen.